the text under consideration tonight, verse 10. Um, if you're looking at an English translation, let me read it for you. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. You'll notice that there are 13 English words, at least in my translation, 13 English words, and four of them are in italics, which means that in the Greek New Testament, those four words are not there. So you've got fully uh, one-third of the English statement found in your Bibles that is not found in the Greek New Testament. So um, it's, it's a hard thing to translate. It really is. And, and your translations will vary uh, reflecting the difficulty uh, of translating it. Um, in all honesty, I, um, I think probably the, at least the clearest translation is this one uh, found in the New King James. I, I checked several, but it has its shortcomings. But um, the text is, and the commandment which was to bring life. Some of you will have the word intended. Some of you will find the word ordained. Um, but the commandment which was to bring life. I found to bring death. I'm just suggesting um, for those who are mindful of these things, uh, it's a very difficult. Actually, there are only six or seven Greek words in the text in the in the New Testament. There's some what they call uh, there's some conjunctions and some particles they call them, but in terms of words to translate, there's only six of them. Six or seven. I think there's seven. Um, and so you, the translators have really struggled to try to give you the sense of what's meant. And I think they've done a fairly good job. Now, guys, uh, again, this is a continuation on the part of the Apostle Paul um, in his effort to explain, describe, make clear the purpose, the role, the function of the law. That's a discussion that's very important when it comes to discovering that uh, no man, no flesh will ever be justified by law. It's an important discussion to determine the, the nature of the, of the gospel. But it's also an important discussion, ladies and gentlemen, um, after we've become Christians, after we've settled very clearly that the law will never save, the discussion is maybe not equally as important, but vitally important nonetheless. Uh, in terms of trying to figure out the proper functioning of the law. We know on one side of, uh, of the cross, that is, prior to coming to Christ, the law will not save us. But having um, made that discovery and committed ourselves solely to the finished work of Christ, what then is the purpose of the law? It will not justify, nor will it sanctify. Now, I've said that several times, and I thought what I would do tonight is start off with trying to illustrate, because I, I thought of something that I think will fairly well illustrate why, or at least illustrate the point, that the law will not sanctify. So let me, let me try to do that right now. I just want to illustrate for you the impotence of the law to sanctify. It has no remedial or restraining effects on sin. 
in us, in the redeemed company of God's people, it has no remedial or restraining effect on sin. Now, what I want to do is try to illustrate that um, to, the, to help you get your minds around it. Let's talk for a moment. Again, this is, just, this is just by way of illustration that the law will not sanctify. All right? Let's talk a minute about dress. That is appropriate dress. That is how we as Christians are to dress. Uh, interestingly enough, that, that issue comes up from time to time. Uh, several months ago, I got my head taken off in this hall right up there on a Wednesday night by a mother who uh, told me that I needed to do something about uh, the dress, um, the, the way that people dress around here. Primarily, I must inform you, it was aimed at women. It was a woman who got me, and, and uh, she was just... And all the ladies are squirming now. But um, uh, she was concerned about, and, and I understand. I mean, I'm not trying to make fun of her concern. Please, uh, I'm not. But um, I, I don't know exactly what she wanted me to do. That is, to go home with all of you and dress you or, uh, you know, go shopping with you when you buy your clothes. I, I don't know exactly what she intended. But uh, I was supposed to do something about this. Um, I really, I, I don't, I don't see myself as being able to uh, affect much of anything. But um, that was her charge to me that I needed to do something. Now, tell me, ladies and gentlemen, if you could derive a principle of dress from the scriptures. Now, we're looking to the scriptures to give us help and direction concerning how we dress as believers. What is the foremost principle that you could discover included in the Old and New Testament? What would it be? The principle of modesty. modesty. Is that not true? Is, that, is everybody in the house in agreement over the one principle um, that we know we can identify from the Scriptures that is to guide us when it comes to our dressing. Now, again, we men can, um, can violate here, but we don't, we're not as, um, as often under the microscope as, as our women. Now, so, but we know that that is a biblical norm. We know that that's a biblical good, don't we? Modesty is a good thing. The, the, the difficulty now begins as we try to define it. What is modesty? I tell you what, just because ladies are the ones that are most um, frequently scrutinized, let's just, let's just talk about you, okay? <laughs> oh, because we talk about men and other things. But, so what, what could we say to you? What, if Knowing that this is a biblical goal, what then would you think I ought to say to you concerning this principle. Well, let me tell you a story. Um, several years ago, let me, let me back up even before that. Um, one of the things that has been such a, a value, at least to me here at Grace Event, and I think to many others, including the eldership, 
is the value of, um, well, let me put it like this. Have you ever heard us talk about yes faces around here? We want to have a yes face. I told a story many years ago about Thomas Jefferson crossing a, a, a stream that was overflowing the, the, the sides. And, and um, this man was trying to get to the other side. And, and this group of men came up and, and the horses went over and almost drowned. And, but um, this man goes up to this one man and, and, um, and asks him, um, would you carry me across the river? This raging stream. And so he did, and the, he got on the man's horse, and he carried him across, and he got on the other side, and the man, uh, somebody went, went up to this man and said, did you know, I mean, why is it that you asked the President of the United States to bury you across this stream? And he said, well, I don't know. From the, just all, all I could tell is that he had a yes face. Remember we tell that story? Well, we wanted to have a yes face around here. So, so putting together rules was something that was very, very unappealing to us. Very unapp- For me to um, gather for you, you know, you've heard me talk about code living, and I hate it, and, and um, how false I think it is, and, you know, and all that business. So we have sought very diligently to avoid rules. Code living. And about five years ago, the, the, the situation erupted such that we were faced with a very difficult situation. And it, it was presented to us by a group of young females in our youth department, in the high school youth department. You remember this, Andrew? <laughs> were you around then? Yeah, oh boy. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> well, um... And, and what was happening is, on church trips, some young women in our, in our congregation, who, you know, probably now are mothers by now, but uh, um, were wearing some bathing suits, primarily two-piece bathing suits, that were oh so terribly provocative and revealing. Terrible thing. And I don't mean, it isn't, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. I'm not trying to make light of it. And so, I mean, but here, here we had the clash of two um, values, shall we say? The value of we want to have a yes face, we don't want rules, but we've got this problem uh, in the youth department. And so, agonizingly so, really, I mean, it was after, you know, we, we avoided it for a year, maybe for two years, and... And um, finally, it got to the point where, oh, in fact, you might recall uh, Michelle Hill, precious Michelle Hill. She was going to get into the mix and she's going to fix this thing. And so she had a little uh, meeting of all the high school girls out at her house. And, and then um, that didn't seem to do much. And so she would go on the trips and she'd take these girls with these two feet bathing suits aside and say, honey, what's the, what the world are you doing? I mean, I mean, she just, you know, the old jackhammer approach. To, to try and, and correct this. <clears throat> so, um, after all of this agony that we went through over a couple of years, and really, I was, the, I was the one standing in the way. That is, no, we cannot make a rule. You know, here's the rule. Here's the only biblical given. And so, to make rules is to... Is to um, skate very closely to adding something to the Scriptures. But 
we finally caved. And we made a rule. We made a rule. And the rule is, and the rule that abides to this day, if you have high school, by the way, I had one mother say to me, thank you, because now I can say to my daughter, it's the rule of the church. <clears throat> the coward. Um, <clears throat> but um, we made a rule. One piece only. One piece bathing suits only, at least <laughs> on our church trips. I mean, I don't know what you're going to do when you go to Destin, but on the church trips, one piece only. Do you think that's a good rule? I'll tell you what, let's settle this the good old American way. How many of you think that that's a good rule? Let's see your hands. Look at that. Look at you. You legalist Jew. <laughs> How many of you don't think that's a good rule? Anybody in the house? We have one person in the house. Of course, he's partially brain dead. Um, <laughs> now, guys, whether it's a good rule or not a good rule, I'll let somebody else decide. Here's my question for you. Do you think that our rule has produced modesty? Heck no. Heck no. And they never will. <laughs> you answer that. Do you think it's a reduce adulterous thoughts? Do you think a one-piece bathing suit is going to stop me from lusting after you? Well, let me just go a step further because I used this illustration last week. Let's say we produce this law. No alcohol. Christians drink no alcohol. Now, let me ask you a question. I don't even know what the biblical norm, because I don't think the Bible teaches that. But let's just say that the Bible teaches no alcohol. I don't think it does. But, but, but my question is simply this. Does this law produce this piece of behavior? Have you ever done singles before? <laughs> Have you ever been around a group of singles? And you can, you can tell them all you want to. No, it's the business. And it doesn't produce anything. Now, guys, go with me another step. What if we had another law and another law and another law and another law? And we just multiplied laws. Is it going to produce sterling Christian character? <laughs> no. It'll never produce sterling Christian character, my I'm, I'm trying to illustrate to you, the law will not save you, but nor will it sanctify you. This law, my friends, which we have on our books, and I support it, it will not turn our little girls into modest dressers. Have you all seen that commercial on the television about, I mean, this just... I mean, this really appeals to me, uh, but it's this little teenage girl, and she's around 16. I know she's around 16 because she gets into a car and her friend's driving. 
But the commercial is about this little girl. She's around 16, and she's cute as a bug's ear, and, and she's saying goodbye to her daddy, and, and, uh, and they're entering into some kind of contractual arrangement of some sort. That is what time she's going to be. I forget exactly what the dialogue in the copy is. I, I don't remember that part. It's just a daddy concerned about his little 16-year-old girl, and he's doing a good job of being a daddy, and he's saying, darling, you're going to be home. Oh, yeah, daddy. And, and the little girl is very respectful and, and just a delight. And, yeah, daddy. Oh, you know, bye, daddy. You know, I'll be a good girl. And so she runs out of the door. She gets into the car. She opens her purse, and she begins to put on all of this other makeup, and she, be, she lets down her hair, and she unbuttons a top button on her, on her blouse, and, 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 and they head to the convenience store. Now, and I, I forget exactly what they're trying to buy. I, I want to say it's cigarettes. What, is it beer? Is it beer? She's trying to buy beer. But now, do you see the point? Here's all this law at home. And what does it produce? Does it produce the kind of behavior that the daddy wanted it to produce? She was in that car, and within minutes, it was forgotten, shucked, and discarded. Because, ladies and gentlemen, law will never sanctify you. <clears throat> you can multiply law. And it will never... In fact, ladies and gentlemen, it, it, there, it, I think I've, I've um, mentioned... Oh, gosh. I've mentioned this before. But do you know where, um, from what group comes the highest rate of alcoholism? Well, <laughs> that was tacky. <laughs> but it's those who come from environments where they were raised to think of no alcohol being permitted. <laughs> well, that's a given. But right, guys, surely you can see my point. The point is, the law does not justify. Okay, we all agree with that. Everybody knows that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone uh, because, you know, works, by, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. We all know that. But I'm telling you, the law will not sanctify you either, and I'm, I'm not sure you do know that. I think stuck someplace in your Christian experience is the idea that if I'm ever going to demonstrate some kind of Christ-like, sterling Christian character, it's going to come as I obey all the rules. And then we start looking to our church to provide the rules for me to obey. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, it's a fool's errand. You see the absolute foolishness of legalism, in the Christian version of legalism, where somebody tells me how I'm supposed to dress, what I'm supposed to drink, what I'm supposed to view as a movie, and where I'm supposed to go with my wife. And I'm supposed to raise my kids, and on and on and on and on and on it goes. The law will not justify, nor will it sanctify you, ladies and gentlemen. What Paul is telling us in this section is the appropriate understanding of the law, of the role, the function, the purpose of the law. Okay. Having done that, look with me at the text again. We're going to uh, try to cover, and I think we will successfully cover verse 10. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Now, guys, the controversial part of, the, of, the, uh, of verse 10 
is the clause which says, which was to bring life. The King James translates it, was ordained to life. That is, uh, the law which was... Oh, and some of you, you, some of your translations have the word intended or resulted uh, or was to result in. Now, the, the, the controversial part of that statement is, when was that? When was there ever a time when the law was intended to bring life? Has Paul contradicted himself somehow? Because he has stated on numerous occasions, one of those being in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that by no means would the law ever justify anybody. Has Paul somehow contradicted himself? Well, by no means, ladies and gentlemen. What, what you find in verse 10 of, verse of chapter 7 is not something that you can't find elsewhere in the Scriptures. For instance, in Romans chapter 10, verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. That's uh, Romans 10.5. How about um, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5? Uh, just one other after this one. Leviticus 18.5. Uh, you shall therefore keep my statutes and judgments, which if a, if a man does, he shall live by them. And then the, the, the most interesting one, at least to me, is found in the, uh, the parable... Uh, it's not a parable. It's an event in the lives, a life of Jesus, chapter, Luke, uh, chapter 10 of Luke. The rich young ruler, where in Luke 10, um, verses 25 through, um, excuse me, uh, it's not in the rich young ruler. It's in, uh, yes it is. No, it's not. Uh, but it's uh, in verses 25 through 28, where Jesus says, um, uh, it, it is. All right. Um, anyway, verse 26, he says, uh, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with soul, and strength, and all your neighbor and yourself. And he said, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. The, the, the point I'm making, ladies and gentlemen, is that what Paul is alluding to is something that is a, not a contradiction, but a very, um, uh, not often, but uh, repeated position. And the position is this. If you obey the law fully and perfectly, you will live. That is all that Paul is suggesting. That there is indeed, very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you, you do not need Jesus Christ to get to heaven. All you need to do is to live the law perfectly. But you see, that's not possible. That is, the law um, uh, and the commandment which was to bring life, but it didn't bring life. It brought death. And the reason that it brought death was because of the entrance of sin. Now, that's another thing that I wanted to mention just kind of hurriedly about the entrance of sin. Because I think most of you know all this. Um, but uh, for those of you who don't, you might find it a bit... Um, instructive. Hopefully you will. The entrance of sin, uh, that's what made the law no longer a route by which any, any man could live. Um, and where was that entrance? To what am I referring when I talk about the entrance of sin? 
Well, of course, we're talking about Genesis chapter 3. And guys, uh, you know that um, uh, Adam and Eve, even if they had obeyed um, the, the, uh, the covenant of works that they were given in Genesis 2, there would have been no redemption. There would have been no redeemer. There would have been no need for a redeemer because there would have been no sin. But what you find in Genesis chapter 3 is the entrance of sin, particularly verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of it and ate, she also gave. Now, there is a lot of criticism that Genesis chapter 3 takes, ladies and gentlemen, because what's so... um, well, there's just several things that the critic loves to um, pick at, like how does a snake talk and all that business. But the point is, ladies and gentlemen, this is indeed where we discover the entrance of sin. The entrance of sin um, and its um, pervasiveness is discussed under a, under a doctrine uh, that I hope you know all about called total depravity. Uh, That is, sin entered, and two things are important. Number one, who, and number two, what. That is, who was affected by the entrance of sin, and what was the extent of the impact of the entrance of sin. Um, In fact, um, all of Christendom agrees over the fact that Who was affected? The universality of the fall. That is, that sin entered and its impact was universal in scope. It swept and touched all men. And um, uh, people will, if you want to see the truth of this, all you need do is wake up tomorrow morning and read your newspaper. And you will find, in, in fact, if it was not universal in its, uh, in its scope, then you would be able to assume that there were one or two or three or four or ten people who would have lived perfectly. But that's never happened. So what we're, the point is, when sin enters, its impact spread universally, that is, all men are affected. This is the controversial part. In fact, people don't fight over this part. Even the Roman Catholics agree here, and they call it, uh, as we do, original, original sin. That Adam's sin spread to all of us. That you were born in this world ill-prepared to leave it. That you are, by nature, children of wrath. That's, that's the doctrine of total depravity um, or original sin. This is the controversial part. This is not. Sin entered and affected everybody. But the impact, or what was the impact of sin entrance, is that it was to render all men dead. That is, spiritually, men are in the state of death. Um, We don't have time to take a look at that tonight, and this is really not the the venue for it. But all I'm trying to say is, yes, there was was a, um, a possibility... That man could be saved by works until Genesis 3. And then that possibility ceased to exist because sin entered. Now, so back to the text itself. 
um, and the commandment which was to bring life. That's what he has in mind. Uh, the intent um, uh, that the law originally intended was to not bring about an occasion to sin, but it was to direct life into a path of righteousness. But due to sin's entrance, it no longer does that. What it does, very interestingly, as he said in verse 5, is that it arouses sin. You, you wonder if the rule to have a single-piece bathing suit makes your daughters long for a two-piece even more. I think it does. Well, that's what Paul is suggesting, is that this, because of the entrance of sin, the law that had this wonderful purpose... Now, instead of directing us into a path of righteous living, it now doesn't do that. And what it does is arouse the nature that is now mine because of the entrance of sin. Um, I, I will say this, ladies and gentlemen, for, for us as regenerate people, it still is a wonderful um, uh, map as to things that are uh, pleasing in the sight of God. And thus has great value in that regard. There's one other thing that I want you to see, and then we're going to quit. But And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. That's, that statement, that, that, that I found part. How did he find it? Um, was the finding of this piece of information due uh, to his... Uh, arduous, lifelong, intense investigation. Now, ladies and gentlemen, um, and, and none of us will find it like that. Um, it was something that he discovered as the result of the law coming to him. You know, you remember he mentioned that in verse nine. Now, to what does he refer? That is, when he discovered, when he made this, um, uh, this discovery, was it uh, on the heels of a grand and glorious investigation on his part? No, no. He discovered that it was not something that would bring life, that it only condemned. He discovered that because of the Holy Spirit, Spirit giving him eyes to see and ears to hear. Without that, ladies and gentlemen, he would have never discovered it. I alluded to this last week. I want you to see it this week, and with this we'll close. I want you to, I want you to put your little fingers on it and, and hopefully see it for the first time. But I want you to go to John 3 with me. Because we, we all know the lingo. We know the language of being born again. We know the language of rebirth. We know the language, even perhaps, uh, the more theological types of regeneration. What does that do? Well, here it's described for you in John 3. Let me read it to you. It's in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see. Now that's the word, ladies and gentlemen, that so many of you are confused about. Because the work of the Holy Spirit is to grant you the ability to see it. Because prior to the Holy Spirit's work, you didn't even see it. 
the word that you want to put in that place is the word enter. That is, if you're born again, you enter the kingdom of God. But that's not what it says. This is an allusion, ladies and gentlemen, to the work of the Holy Spirit. How did the law finally come to Paul? How was it that he finally, he thought one thing about the law was true, but all of a sudden, now he knows that's a false and this is true. How does that happen? How did it happen to him? How did it happen to you? You were born of the Spirit. And as a result of his rebirth, you got eyes. You got eyes to see it, and you had been looking at it for years and never saw it. Oh, you had eyes, but you did not have eyes to see. You know, um, I think I've told you this before, and I hope I didn't tell you last week, but I remember having become a Christian. Um, you know, I was raised, as you know, in the church. And, and um, in my world, everybody knew the name of Billy Graham. I mean, you know that name, don't you? I mean, even as a wild, screaming, partying, drinking, essay jerk at the University of Tennessee, I knew Billy Graham. Billy Graham scared the daylights out of me, really. I, you know, I, I knew he was supposed to be liked, but I wasn't particularly high on him. And... Um, but my point is, I became a Christian in September, and I don't remember what month, I don't remember how long it was, but I came home from work. Um, it was after work one evening, and Billy Graham was having a crusade somewhere in the world. And I remember distinctly thinking, ain't it nice to finally be on the same side with Billy Graham? What was that, ladies and gentlemen? What was that that made me come from one side of that fence to the other side of that? What was it that made me stop doing this and start doing this? What was it that made me see when I couldn't have seen? What was it that made me understand my own desperate condition? It's right there in John 3, 3, ladies and gentlemen. The Holy Spirit grants you graciously, sovereignly, efficaciously. He grants you, not entrance. He grants you eyes. He grants you eyes to see it. And I see it. I see my sin. I see my need for a Savior as a result of my sin. And I embrace that Savior. I'm, I'm commenting on the words where Paul says, I found. It wasn't, he didn't find it as the result of some kind of studied investigation. He found that his understanding of the law was wrong, that it didn't bring life, that it only brought death, and he found that because of the Holy Spirit's work. So did you. You might not be able to remember the night, you know, the hour, or the moment, or the episode. But I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, the reason that you see it is because the Holy Spirit gave you those eyes. The reason that you understand that the law will not save you is because the Holy Spirit gave you that. You found it too, the same way Paul found it. Let's quit. Our Father, I I do thank you for having taken wild, screaming, partying, drinking, obnoxious human beings like myself and 
giving them a new set of eyes. You did it for Paul. You did it for me. You did it for everybody that's seated in this room who is regenerate. All of us see it and embrace it when the world scoffs at it. We see it because the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit granted us eyes to see and ears to hear. We celebrate, Father, the finding, the finding of the true purpose of the law. And we celebrate that we are alive now because of what you have wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. We love the Savior because the Holy Spirit gave us eyes to see his beauty. And for us. He is beautiful indeed. We pray, of course, in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you and good night.